and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's weekly, weekly, it's now weekly podcast about the courts and the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm Dahlia Lithwick. And look, between the various Trump lawsuits, the Senate Judiciary Committee's vote last week to authorize subpoenas for Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow, plus the launch of Donald Trump's fantastic new reality show called Dictator for a Day, uh, it's been a brisk little week for your friendly rule of law types. And if your heart beats just a little bit faster at the mention of oligarchy, well, this was a busy week at the high court, too, with the justices on Monday reviewing the bankruptcy reorganization of opioid maker Purdue Pharma in a way that would protect the Sackler family, Purdue's owners, from future liability. Then, on Tuesday, the court heard another big billionaire boondoggle case of the long-awaited Moore versus United States. This case challenges a provision of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that required a one-time-only tax on previously untaxed foreign profits. The case did not go well for the billionaire boondogglers. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, come on, Dahlia, how can the justices continue to fly around on private jets and stay at luxury resorts and catch and release their 1% salmon if they aren't going to keep throwing cases for their rich Monopoly man buddies? It's a good question. Lawyer and corporate governance professor Jennifer Taub will be joining us on the show this week to discuss where a case like Moore comes from and how the oral arguments went down inside the courtroom. Then my trusty colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, is going to hop on to unspool another thread of the backstory in the Moore case, including why Justice Samuel Alito even participated in a case in which David Rifkin was a prime mover. Rifkin, of course, is Alito's ride or die. He's his best friend, journalistic anger translator. He's also, by the way, Leonard Leo's lawyer. Mark will also explain why it matters that the court is hearing yet another in a series of cases in which several of the sworn facts in the plaintiff's briefs are seemingly material lies. And then Mark is going to stick around after the main show for a little bit more conversation exclusive to our Slate Plus members about a really important Title VII case that went strangely well at the high court on Wednesday and why even the fact that it went well might not be good news. If you're not a Slate Plus member, but you'd like to listen to me and Mark shoot the jurisprudential breeze and enjoy all of our podcasts ad-free, and that's not all, folks, if you would like to get unlimited reading at Slate.com, never, ever hitting a paywall, go to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus to find out how you can become a Slate Plus member and enjoy all these benefits. Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And to our cherished Slate Plus members, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting the work we do. But first, Moore v. United States came to the high court as one of the scariest constitutional challenges of the fall season. It all sounds very technical, so we're going to do the thumbnail sketch for you here. But as the tax law flies at you over the next half hour or so, just know that this case was brought in hopes of gutting the government's ability to collect taxes from the very rich with the potential side order of gutting the government's ability to collect a whole bunch of taxes, period. Plaintiffs Charles and Catherine Moore were challenging what's known as the Mandatory Repatriation Tax, MRT. 
That was enacted as part of Donald Trump's 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and it required a one-time tax on Americans who own shares in foreign corporations, who never pocketed or, quote, realized profits, and were therefore never subject to U.S. taxation. The MRT, to be sure, was meant to offset the huge tax break that Trump gave other billionaires. Backstory to the backstory. In 2006, Charles and Kathleen Moore invested $40,000 in Kissencraft, an Indian company. They alleged that they never received any payments from the company because all of the profits were reinvested. Nonetheless, they were subject to the MRT, so they paid their $14,729, and then they sued the federal government to get it back, claiming it was an unconstitutional form of taxation. The Moors lost in federal court. They lost again at the Ninth Circuit, but when the Supreme Court granted the case last June, the possibility suddenly arose that a win for the Moors would not only imperil a future wealth tax, we'll talk about that later, but could also take out a huge chunk of the current tax code. Okay, that's my quick and dirty stab at rendering complex tax law super fascinating, but thankfully Jen Taub was in the chamber at the High Court on Tuesday, and she's going to join us now to render it all crystal clear. Jennifer Taub is a law professor and advocate whose writing focuses on follow-the-money questions, promoting transparency, and opposing corruption. She's testified as a banking law expert before Congress and appears frequently on MSNBC and CNN. She's a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law, and her second book, Big Dirty Money, was published in 2020. Jen hosts the Booked Up podcast for Politicon, and her piece on more was just published in the Washington Monthly. Jen, welcome back to Amicus. Thanks for having me back, Dahlia. So so before we even get there, Jen, there are, beyond the complexities of tax law and the 16th Amendment, some other layers going on here. And mostly in our conversation with you, we want to focus on the constitutional questions and the history and the arguments in the court this week. But before we even get to that, can we just talk a tiny bit about where this particular case came from? Because this appeal was brought by the Moors, yes. But behind the Moors, there was a whole vast machinery that opposes taxation on the wealthy and kind of wants to send us back to the Lochner era. So Charles and Kathleen are not exactly Rosa Parks here. Who are they? Who was behind this litigation? I guess what I'm asking, Jen, is where do baby tax law cases come from? Well, I'm so glad that you asked me these questions, Dahlia, because you were not born yesterday. And I think most people would understand that a well-off married couple who's seeking a, you know, nearly $15,000 tax refund doesn't usually, you know, keep losing in court and take their case all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. There must be another story, especially when you see that their lead counsel of record, Andrew Grossman, is a partner with this major white shoe law firm. The answer, I think, to all of this is follow the money. And here, we're not talking about some $15,000. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. And another clue uh, that there's more afoot here is that the Supreme Court decided in June to take this case on, even though there was not a split among the circuits to settle. 
So there is the big context, and then there's the little context. Do you want to go for the big multi? Do the big, do the big, do the big (laughs) context. Okay, so the big story is about the Trump tax law that you remember was passed right before Christmas of 2017, and it was a very big gift for giant corporations and the wealthy. And what most people remember is that it, it amounted to about $1.9 trillion in tax cuts. You may know that there's this kind of budget scoring and this blah, blah, blah. You can't just like chop $1.9 trillion out of the revenue that the federal government is going to have, and, and that would be the end of it, right? They had to find some sort of, you know, couch coins to make up for that. So what the Republicans who wrote this bill did, because not a single member of the Democratic caucus supported it. What they included in there was this mandatory repatriation tax, the MRT. And think of big corporations like Apple and Microsoft and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and Google, or if it's called Alphabet now, these giant corporations had minimized in a sort of lawful way their tax liability. They avoided paying tax for 30 years. They deferred tax on income that they were sort of on paper earning overseas. And this was according to laws that go back decades. And so finally, the Republican Congress wrote this into the Trump tax law that you need to now recognize those profits, period. And this is supposed to deliver $340 billion to the Treasury. So yes, $340 billion coming in doesn't make up for the $1.9 trillion tax cut, but you can see it's a big chunk of it. It really feels like a bait and switch maneuver because I have a good sense that whoever wrote that into the bill had the notion that it would be challenged by the Supreme Court and someone would try to knock it down. So, you know, I think these big corporations were trying to have their cake and eat it too, if you know what I mean. So the top two companies in terms of who has been squirreling away, uh, you know, profits offshore are Apple and Microsoft. Apple so far has already paid $37 billion in that mandatory repatriation tax. So that's great. And Microsoft, the second in line, $18 billion. Okay. Now, those big players, and really we're talking about, you know, all the S&P, you know, 500 firms, et cetera. We're talking about is these big players um, will stand to reap a windfall if the Supreme Court either strikes down the MRT or somehow pairs it back. Um, Now, I'm not suggesting a conspiracy theory. I'm just noting an interesting fact. I've been studying this case, Dahlia, uh, since June because I'm writing a book on tax policy for Viking to follow up on big, dirty money. Would it surprise you if I told you that although the people in the, you know, keep saying, you know, this is a retired couple, would it surprise you that Charles Moore, before he retired, worked at Microsoft? Well, I think I knew this only because I know that's where he made friends with Ravi, whose company he invests in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So his colleague, who was a software engineer at Microsoft, was the one who pitched him on making this $40,000 investment. Um, so that that's interesting. Also, you get some, an organization like the Competitive Enterprise Institute holding this couple out as this poster child of, you know, people who are beaten down by the tax code. And they were really, really wanting 
the Supreme Court to hear the case. And, you know, part of the sort of publicity pitch for this was this video that you can still see on the Competitive Enterprise Institute's website. Who starts? You start. Okay. <laughs> um, Kiss and Craft is a company in India, uh, essentially founded by uh, myself as a small investor and my friend Ravi Agrawal. Ravi and I met. It's really kind of an amazing video if you watch it and you know anything about tax law. He's very upset that he learns in 2018, after this law goes into effect, that he has to pay this additional $14,729 that he thought he, you know, he wasn't going to have to pay. And by the way, this company that his friend started, they were hoping would one day go public. This is in his own affidavit, right? It's a company that's, that is selling farm tools to small farmers in India. Well, Kiss and Craft was supplying power tools to Indian farmers. If Indian farmers could be made more productive by bringing power tools to them that are suitable for their types of farms. That would be great. Yeah, so. it felt exciting to... You know. And the, the goal is to grow the company. It's an investment. First of all, he claims that he and his wife made this investment, but on paper, it was only his investment. And by the way, he had a controlling stake of more than 10%, which is what the law would consider a controlling stake. And one of the things that he complains about in this short video, he gets very indignant and he, you know, he says in this really pitched voice. If you haven't received any income, how can you be required to pay income taxes? You might think that is a reasonable question. The thing is, it's actually not a reasonable question because it misunderstands how the federal government has raised taxes for over a century. So there is a long history of Congress attributing profits of a business to its owners, even when the owners never receive a penny. Okay, that happens. There's this thing called pass-through taxation. So in other words, if you set up your business as a partnership, individual partners can get taxed on the partnership income, even when it's not distributed. Similarly, if an individual sets up what's called an S-corp, a lot of people do that. The money to that is passed through and attributed to its owner. So that's one thing. And again, he keeps complaining about, uh, not just in his video, but sort of the brief is all about this. If you haven't received any income, how can you be required to pay income taxes? Well, in addition to those many examples, Congress has, at least since the 1930s, sought to actually tax U.S. shareholders, including big corporations, on the portions of the earnings of the foreign corporations in which they own shares, not always successfully. And I can get really wonky um, even the Moors admit that there's this thing called subpart F that's been around, you know, by the way, since JFK's presidency. And that allows for the taxation of certain kinds of income of foreign corporations, even when it's not paid to the U.S. owners, just like the kind of corporation the Moors were invested in. So, I mean, I know that sounds really um, like a lot of information, but it's really important because that was what was of most concern to all of the justices, on the court, that if they decided to rule in favor of the Moors and hold this MRT, this mandatory repatriation tax, unconstitutional, what was going to happen to all these other ways that the federal government earns money? 
Before we get to the merits, the other thing I want to talk about is this case was also, as I understand it, fairly explicitly brought as a preemptive challenge to the possibility of a someday wealth tax, um, an idea that's been put forward by Senator Elizabeth Warren and others. So I wonder if before we can get into the nitty-gritty with the Moors, you can just tell us what is the wealth tax and why uh, I realize this does not warrant explaining, Jen, why did the wealthy oppose it? Yeah, um, there are different flavors of wealth tax, but the one that I think could survive is a type that would tax um, the super wealthy on things like their financial assets, on how much, you know, on the gain, the paper gain on their financial assets. And the this is trying to get at this major loophole um, that billionaires have been using to avoid paying taxes. And what they do is they buy financial assets, like invest, they invest in something. These grow on paper, but they never sell them. So they never have a moment where they you know, realize um, the gain on that. But what they do instead to get, put cash in their pocket so they can you know, buy things is they borrow against those assets. They get money to spend, and then they avoid paying taxes on the money they borrow. Because as you know, when you borrow money, you know, you don't pay taxes on the, the money you borrow. And then on top of that, what the billionaires have been doing is they use these complex estate planning techniques such that even their heirs um, can, you know, squeeze money out of these assets because they will inherit these assets tax-free. And so this so-called buy, borrow, die approach is the kind of thing that Senator Ron Wyden is trying to stop with his billionaire's income tax bill that he just introduced. We are going to take a short break. Back now to my conversation with Professor Jennifer Topp. Okay, so now I have to ask, you've mentioned it twice, about the 16th Amendment. Yes. uh, Because it's history and tradition time, and it feels as though um, for a court that's supposed to be sort of mindful (laughs) of history and tradition. I wonder if you could just walk us quickly through how we got a 16th Amendment and and the ways in which it was actually a response to a tax crisis brought upon the country by the Supreme Court itself in the late 19th century with a decision in a tax case called Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. Something that people don't probably think about is that there were all kinds of forms of taxation the federal government used prior to us getting this income tax in 1913. The, the, the biggest revenue raisers were the, the customs duties or tariffs, excise taxes and stamp taxes on certain transactions. The other way they raised money was selling federal land until we got to the, the Civil War when President Abraham Lincoln was trying to raise money and the bankers were kind of like, you know, we're having a hard time floating um, your debt because no one actually thinks you're going to be able to pay it back. And if you do, it's just going to be inflationary because you're issuing all these greenbacks. And so finally, uh, Lincoln was able to get an income tax. And that income tax helped fund the Civil War. After the war, that income tax lasted until it kept getting pared down and the tariffs kept getting increased. That income tax lasts until the 1870s when it's finally repealed. 
The problem that arose, Dahlia, was the high tariffs really made ordinary people unhappy because it meant the price of goods was raised, either because the stuff they bought that was imported was higher because of the custom duty attached to it, or domestic manufacturers could keep their prices high because they weren't really competing. And so ultimately, the prospect of an income tax came up again. Congress passed this income tax, but then it kind of wrongly got struck down in this Pollock case. There are a lot of people who think that the Supreme Court was incorrect. And I agree that they didn't have to uh, strike down the income tax. They decided that it was a kind of tax that had to be apportioned, and therefore it was unconstitutional. And so it took many years, and ultimately the introduction by Congress in 1909, and finally the ratification by 1913 of this constitutional amendment, restoring the status quo before this stupid case in Pollock. And all it says in the 16th Amendment is that the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. So I just want to quickly skip through oral arguments uh, as they went down on Tuesday, because as you said up top, This felt like it was a death knell, not just for the MRT, but also for huge chunks of the tax code. It does not feel that arguments went that way. And I think that we heard from a lot of the justices, including, you know, some of the the more conservative justices who might have been in the tank for the Moors, that they were, in fact, not uh, in the tank for the Moors. You wrote in your Washington Monthly piece, and other folks have noted that to the extent that the Moors and their lawyers were counting on Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, the Chief Justice. Uh, they just did not get a lot of traction with any of them. What was the vibe that you got in terms of where that sort of centrist, quote unquote, chunk of the court was settling down? The centrists on the court don't even want to reach the 16th Amendment at all. Nominally, the question here is what is income under the 16th Amendment? The Moors and their supporters are trying to argue that income under the 16th Amendment means income that has been realized by the person that you are taxing. So this is why the Moors are saying, I didn't get any money income, how can I be taxed? The Supreme Court is reluctant to read into the 16th Amendment a realization requirement. At the jump, what the chief justice said, what Thomas said, what the centrist and most most of the liberals said was, it's obvious that this income was realized. Someone got it. This Kissenkraft Corporation got this income, period. So there is realization. We don't even have to opine on whether the 16th Amendment requires realization. And then they took the next step and said, Congress has the authority to attribute income how they want. And the Supreme Court has noted, and this is, you know, as I mentioned, that Congress has said, we will attribute partnership income to the partners. And so by doing that, they can avoid this thorny 16th Amendment issue. So I just want to play for you one second. Here's Brett Kavanaugh making essentially the point you just made. We have realization in this case, the entity realized income. The question then is attribution. And we've long held that 
uh, Congress may attribute the income of the company to the shareholders or the partnership to the partners. So, Jen, that feels like that's the position. Some version of that is the position that is going to command a majority in your view? Absolutely. I'd be shocked if that didn't. But then there's the second question, though. We might get a due process tangle here. The only real wrinkle, I think, here is that it goes back and captures prior year's income. And that's the only thing that concerns me. So talk a little bit about the due process tangle, and then I want to ask you about Justice Alito. Some of the justices raised the question of whether looking back 30 years and attributing this offshore deferred foreign corporation income to shareholders, would that raise due process concerns? In this instance, I'm not sure that it has that's a problem because the Ninth Circuit rejected that and because this was part of a whole tax scheme dating back to the Kennedy era where corporations were allowed to defer, but it wasn't meant to be forever. Here's why the justices are concerned about this. I mean, they're worried, I think, about the implication for this if another similar tax were put forward. And they're concerned, therefore, that, you know, ordinary people, if they were suddenly going to be surprised by a, a tax looking back that they hadn't expected, you know, would that be unfair? I hope the court just decides to deal with that hypothetical tax I'm mentioning at a future date. In this instance, I don't think they need to reach that due process question, but it is possible that some of the justices might want this sent back down to resolve that question. So you suggested when we started talking that this looked like it could be horrifying. And that's when the court accepted cert in June, we thought it was going to be horrifying. Oral argument suggests it's not necessarily going to be nearly as catastrophic as a lot of folks predicted. But then you said, I think it still could be pretty bad. And I would love to give you a chance to tell us why it could still be pretty bad, even though argument did not seemingly go all that well for the Moors and their lawyers. I think that we are going to get a pretty solid, plain vanilla majority decision. But I am worried about the dicta that could be put in some concurrences. And I'm also worried, you know, if they decide to touch on that 16th Amendment question, that could be a problem. I end up on balance quite happy that I think, you know, a billionaire well tax on unearned income has not been killed in the crib, so to speak. And we just have to, I think, you know, educate the public on why it's important to enact a law like this, get public support, get members of Congress to be in support of it. And I think what this case will do, I'm hoping, is not make them fearful to move forward. I think they may feel like they've got a blueprint for attacks that might actually survive a future challenge. Before we say goodbye, I, I wonder if you agree or disagree with my characterization when we first started talking of this as one of a line of cases where some members of the conservative legal movement got way, way, way out ahead of their skis on thinking that they had five votes for something that was really pretty radical. And you've noted, you know, the facts alleged don't quite match the facts uh, as they are on the ground. You've mentioned that 
you know, the lawyers who brought this case had a definite second agenda. Is there some lesson here? And it, again, feels like it's of a piece with so many of the cases the court is hearing this term, which is the court kind of sort of wants to do some of the stuff that the wackiest, fringiest members of the conservative legal movement are pushing on them, but not in this fashion? Or do you just think the court has absolutely no interest in sticking a knife in the heart of the future someday wealth tax or really disassembling the tax code as we know it? And this was just a little wish casting from the Moors and their lawyers and people who got a little overexcited thinking they had five votes when they probably only have two. Yeah, you know, I really want to know the answer to that multi-part question, because I am still scratching my head, Dahlia, as to why there were four votes to grant cert and hear this case. I just don't know. The only theory I have is that there were votes to hear this case, and then the justices, who maybe didn't understand as much about the tax code as they should have, got educated and realized they didn't want to blow it up. That's the best I can think. And so to the extent that, yes, maybe these conservative lawyers got over their skis, but I don't see that this will discourage them from trying again um, because sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. And I'm sure this probably helped them do a lot of fundraising. Jennifer Taub is a law professor and advocate whose writing focuses on follow the money She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress and appears frequently on MSNBC and CNN. She is a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law, and her second book, Big Dirty Money, was published in 2020. She hosts the Booked Up podcast for Politicon. Her piece about this case is right now on the website in Washington Monthly. Jen, thank you so, so much for making time to speak to us about a really terrifically complicated case. Thanks so much, Dahlia. I love to talk tax. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Slate's very own Mark Joseph Stern is going to be here to add his analysis to the mix of cheesy videos and big money stakes in more v. United States. So now we are going to follow the money, as Professor Jen Taub has entreated us to do. Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern covered more of the United States for us at the magazine, and he's also, for some time now, been covering kind of a run of cases that have a couple of striking similarities to this one. So, Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here, as always. So, Mark, we just had a a really solid recap with Jen on uh, what the case was about, what was happening in the chamber. But as you have often pointed out on this show, that's like a tiny piece of the pie. And the other piece of the pie, well, there's two that I want you to address. One is the lawyers in this case and just the utter, utter oddity of David Rifkin 
sometimes best friend of Samuel Alito, sometimes lawyer for Leonard Leo, litigating this case. And then I want you to talk about the material misrepresentations in the record. So let's start, if we can, with this question of why is David Rifkin on this case and why is Sam Alito not recused? You know, Justice Alito is good friends with David Rifkin, uh, a corporate lawyer and kind of an activist conservative attorney. Um, And Alito and Rifkin collaborated on several Wall Street Journal opinion articles. Article is probably too formal a term for it. It's more like Alito just sort of whines and and complains about how he's the world's most persecuted victim. And and they're pals, right? And and so it's a bit odd, to, to put it mildly, that Rivkin was one of two people, along with Andrew Grossman, another conservative activist lawyer, who hatched this case, who worked with the plaintiffs here, the Moors, a couple, um, and uh, brought their case to federal court, appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court, and crafted this theory, which, for all the reasons that Jen explains, is just total garbage, you know, flies in the face of the 16th Amendment, but is designed not only to strike down this particular tax, which is set to raise hundreds of billions of dollars for the government, but also to preemptively nix uh, a possible wealth tax in the future. And Senate Democrats actually pressed Alito to not hear this case, to recuse himself and said, this is a a horrible look for you in the court. You know, any reasonable person would question your partiality. This is the guy you go running to every time someone says something mean about you. Like, why are you sitting on his case? And Alito responded and said, essentially, you know, middle fingers in the air, how dare you question my impartiality? We're all friends with each other in this world. And that doesn't mean we can't set aside, you know, personal feelings and and rule on the merits of the case. Um, I, I thought that was uh, pretty silly at the time and unpersuasive. Everyone is free to read Alito's response and decide for themselves. But I do think it's even harder to swallow knowing what we do now about this case, which is that it's not just that Rivkin with Grossman crafted it as sort of a test case for Alito and the conservatives. It's that they made stuff up and they committed what really looks like perjury and fraud in order to fabricate this case and get it before the justices. And so as difficult as it would be in normal circumstances for a justice to say, hey, these lawyers before me, they were lying to me. I think it's got to be even harder, if not impossible, to say, hey, these lawyers, my pals, my closest confidants were lying to me, and to actually make them face the consequences that any other lawyer would face, hopefully, when lying to the Supreme Court. So it's a dirty case. It's a nasty case. The Alito wrinkle is sort of comically corrupt, but it's also in some ways just a logical sequel to last term's 303 Creative versus Alanis, where the court took on another case with made-up facts, and, and in that instance, rewarded the plaintiffs by issuing a very broad ruling against civil rights laws. So this is actually the gist of why I wanted to have you here today, which is you and I have done an immense amount of aggregated belly aching even before Elenus and the fake facts of Elenus, the fake facts of Coach Kennedy, the 50-yard line private intimate prayer that had no no student coercion involved. This is of a piece with a theme where 
It's not just that you find an imperfect plaintiff and then craft a case around him. It's that you find a plaintiff that actually is in no way represents the claims you are making, and then you just lie about it. So this is a whole new level of fabrication from from the perspective of what the Moors put in their briefing, what they say to the court, what's in their cert petition, and what is actually true. And I know you didn't get a chance to write this in your really superb argument recap, so I would love for you to just take a moment and fulsomely explain to us the many, many ways in which the Moore's case is predicated on things, many, many claims that are not true. Yeah. So, I mean, just the the basic story here, as listeners know, is that as part of the Trump tax cut bill, which was passed by all Republicans in 2017, um, the government imposed this one-time tax uh, on individuals who own more than 10% of shares in a foreign corporation. Uh, that does not cover a huge number of people, but it was projected to raise several hundred billion for the government and to offset that law's contribution to the deficit, which was actually quite major. And this was a key part of the compromise in negotiating that bill and getting it through reconciliation, you know, without a supermajority vote in the Senate or, you know, getting it past a filibuster. This was key to the compromise. It couldn't possibly stand without a challenge because conservative lawyers, above all else, hate taxes. And they really hate the idea of a wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren has proposed that would tax not just income as we regularly understand it, but also things like your very rare painting, your jewels, your property that, you know, is so expensive that you could turn around and make money on any time. A wealth tax would would impose a tax on those items as well. I don't think that's ever going to pass this Congress, but conservative lawyers saw this this new tax and said, we should use that to try to strike down a future wealth tax before it even comes into existence. And so this is sort of where the Moors come in. The Moors are two individuals, a married couple, who do own a stake in a foreign business. And uh, they said, hey, look, you know, we are just this tiny minority investor in this company. The Moors said, we are not really making money off of this company. They claimed that they have never received any distributions or dividends or other payments from this company. They say, we just happen to own these shares. And their whole theory is that it is unconstitutional for the government to tax those shares and the profits that those shares have made because they haven't actually been cashed out yet. They haven't been turned into cold, hard cash. There's not a profit that's in the wallets of the Moors. They still exist as shares. Um, and they claim that that means it's insulated from tax because it's not an income. For all the reasons Jen explains, that's garbage. But I think like the deeper problem here is that the Moore's entire premise that they're just these minority shareholders with almost nothing to do with this company, you know, they, they just wanted to support it and now they're getting taxed to the hill. It's wrong. It's a lie. It is not true at all. So Charles Moore, who is the lead plaintiff, he, he doesn't mention this in the briefing, but he was the director on the board of this company for five years, he invested $150,000 in this company when he told the courts that he only invested $40,000. He lent the company $245,000, which he was paid back with interest. 
He repeatedly traveled to India to oversee the company's operations and received $14,000 in travel reimbursements. And when this tax was coming into effect, he actually worked very closely with the company's founder to try to lower his stake so that he wouldn't face the tax. Because it turns out he and the company's founder worked hand in hand extensively to try to turn this into a money-making machine. So all of that is either lied about or ignored in the briefing. And instead, the briefing says, just to reiterate, that Charles Moore and his wife never received any distributions, dividends, or other payments from Kissingcraft. Absolutely not. They were in the driver's seat of this corporation. And once you understand that, you see why this entire theory of the case falls apart. Because they're saying, hey, these shares that we happen to own in this kind of random company in India, we didn't have any control over that company. You know, we didn't play any role in its operations. There's no way that its profits can be attributed to us in any way because we just happen to own some very small share. Absolutely not. They were in control of this company from the beginning. They played a major role in all profit that it made. And once you see that, you see why it is clearly constitutional under longstanding law for them to be taxed for however much these shares grew because they held control over the corporation. And under U.S. tax law, when you have that control, then the money that grows is attributed to you. The profits are attributed to you. The shares gaining value, it's attributed to you. All of that is attributed to the taxpayer and you can be taxed on it. So I I think it's just really an egregious instance of lying to the court. And this is not just the Supreme Court. This is in district court. This is in sworn declarations in district court. This goes to the very beginning of this case. Andrew Grossman and David Rifkin lied in court filings, as did their clients, And yet none of that was brought up at the Supreme Court. It played no role in this case. And however the court resolves this case, it seems like, A, it's not going to mention the fact that it's a bucket of lies. And B, Sam Alito is going to be in negotiations, in conference, writing drafts, you know, looking at all of the deliberations in this case. And perhaps we might reasonably assume trying to defend the honor of his pal David Rivkin and prevent the court from coming out and admitting that they got kind of they got hoodwinked in this case and that they never should have taken it in the first place. Yeah, one of the things that I thought about a lot when I was reading, you know, there was a letter that was sent saying like, "Oh, really? You know, everything is a lie. Court ignores it." There is this asymmetry always, right? And we really saw this in 303 Creative where it was investigative reporters who are like, uh, oh boy, a lot of this stuff is not true. In the Coach Kennedy case, we had Sonia Sotomayor slapping a photo into her dissent to say like, mm, not true. Uh, there is an asymmetry mark uh, where because of all the norms and conventions around how we litigate cases and how the court uh, deals with cases, the idea that one of the justices would, during oral argument, be like, hmm, Mr. Grossman, is everything you're saying a lie? That would never happen. And so there's a strange way in which we have to deal with the facts as they are brief, not as journalism amply. In this case, there was a huge Washington Post piece that said, Everything here is not true. That just doesn't penetrate the chamber. Right. And I I mean, to the extent the justices even notice it, 
they sometimes criticize it. You know, Sam Alito said during oral arguments in this case that coverage of the case in the media was essentially uh, wildly exaggerated and wrong. He strongly implied that the coverage of this case was was misleading and misguided. And so if the reality of these lies has penetrated his skull, it's only to the extent that he's screaming and railing against the people who are telling the truth, who are doing the investigations and saying, you know, how dare you? How dare you besmirch the honor of my friend in this court in so many words? I think in part two, it's the civility trap where, you know, the, the entire proceeding of oral arguments is so formal and designed to seem like, you know, you're, you're standing before a council of wizards and you're all sort of tapping into some kind of mystical ancient energy that has to be respected. Like you're on the bima and the Torah is before you and you're standing in awe of its glory. And that, I think, precludes a lot of plain-spoken truth-telling that needs to happen at the court. And we're not seeing that from lawyers, in part, because it's so uh, it's so daring and it would be so unfashionable that even if you're on the other side of one of these cases, even if you know that the other side is, is lying, you're not willing to go up there and say before the justices, the black-robed wizards uh, and oracles, hey, by the way, everything you just heard was perjury and you should probably send this guy to some tiny jail in the Supreme Court basement because every word out of his mouth has been a lie. It's just, it doesn't happen. It's never going to happen. And I think that reality encourages the kind of behavior that we saw from Rivkin, that we saw from Grossman, that we saw from the Moors. They know they're going to get away with it. Even if they lose this case, which I think they probably will, they'll still have gotten away with a whole lot of twaddle that should have landed them in hot water. Mark Joseph Stern, you are my sanity. Thank you so much uh, for being here again this week. And um, we'll talk to you next week. Talk soon. Adios. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your comments. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast today's show was produced by sarah burningham and patrick fort alicia montgomery is vice president of audio at slate susan matthews is slate's executive editor and ben richmond is our senior director of operations and we will be back with another episode of amicus next week and until then hang on in there